New York, this is Democracy Now! Another dramatic day in Tennessee as the Shelby County Board of Commissioners voted to reappoint Justin Pearson to the Tennessee House of Representatives less than a week after he and Justin Jones were expelled for joining peaceful protests against gun violence after the Nashville Christian School Massacre. We'll hear highlights from Wednesday's Memphis rally, then speak to Emory University professor Carol Anderson, author of The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. That fraud has been that swaddling of the Second Amendment in the flag, in patriotism, in a sense of, of that the militia were there to protect and defend democracy, when in fact the militia were there designed to control black people and deny black people their rights. So in the Second Amendment, what we have in the Bill of Rights is the right to destroy black people's rights. Then President Biden signs legislation and Ending the coronavirus national emergency. But millions with long COVID say the pandemic is not over. We'll speak with the journalists living with long COVID. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The medication abortion pill, mifepristone, will remain available for now, though with restrictions, after an appeals court partially blocked a ruling by a federal judge in Texas last week that banned it nationwide. A three-judge panel on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals issued a decision late Wednesday that upheld parts of the Texas ruling targeting recent moves by the FDA to increase access to the pill. That means that while challenges to the ban proceed, patients will only be able to access the medication through a doctor's office or clinic and will not be able to receive the pill through the mail or directly from a pharmacy. And patients will only be allowed to access mifepristone through seven weeks of pregnancy instead of the expanded 10 weeks. Mifepristone is used in more than half of abortions in the U.S. It's also widely used to treat miscarriages and can keep people from needing surgery. The issue is likely to end up in front of the Supreme Court. In Tennessee, the Shelby County Board of Commissioners voted unanimously Wednesday to reappoint Justin Pearson to the Tennessee House of Representatives. His reappointment comes less than a week after the Republican-led House voted to expel Pearson and another young black lawmaker, Justin Jones, for leading peaceful protests against gun violence on the House floor after the Nashville school massacre. Ahead of Wednesday's vote, Justin Pearson spoke to hundreds of supporters who rallied outside the Rain Motel in Memphis, where Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated 55 years ago. We're going to keep fighting to end gun violence. We're going to keep fighting to end environmental racism and injustice. We're going to keep fighting for our community to lift up those who have been pushed to the periphery, to move them into the center of conversation and decision-making. Not the gun lobbyists, not the NRA, not the billionaires and the people who are funding other folks' campaigns, but rather the people. After headlines, will air extended excerpts from Wednesday's Memphis rally. 
The United Nations is warning half of Somalia's population, some 8.3 million people, will need humanitarian assistance this year amidst Somalia's worst drought in decades. Speaking from Ogadishu on Wednesday, U.N. Secretary-General Antonio Guterres said nations must now act to prevent a catastrophe. A devastating drought has already resulted in the tragic loss of 43,000 lives in 2022 alone. It has led to the displacement of 1.4 million Somalis, with women and children making up 80 percent. And rising food prices are naturally aggravating anger and malnutrition. Poor and vulnerable communities are pushed by the drought to the brink of starvation. And the situation can get worse. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky called Wednesday for an international response after videos surfaced online appearing to show a Russian soldier beheading a Ukrainian prisoner of war. There is something that no one in the world can ignore, how easily these beasts kill. This video of the execution of a Ukrainian POW, the world must see it. This is a video of Russia as it really is. A Kremlin spokesperson called the video awful but questioned its authenticity. Meanwhile, Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva has arrived in China for a state visit, where he's planning to ask President Xi Jinping to have China join Brazil as mediators in peace talks between Russia and Ukraine. This comes after the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency, the DIA, said it expects the war to continue into next year, with neither side agreeing to peace talks. The came as part of highly sensitive U.S. government materials leaked online and obtained by The Washington Post. The Post is also reporting the man behind the leak is a young racist gun enthusiast who worked on a U.S. military base and was seeking to impress a small group of people, mostly men and teenage boys, in an invitation-only forum on Discord, an online platform popular with gamers. Tunisia's Coast Guard says at least 10 people drown and up to 30 others remain missing after their boat sank off the coast of Tunisia Tuesday, while they attempted to reach Europe to apply for asylum. The deaths came as the United Nations reported more than 440 migrants were lost at sea attempting to cross the central Mediterranean so far this year, the deadliest first quarter on record since 2017. Antonio Vitorino, who leads the International Organization for Migration, said, quote, with more than 20,000 deaths recorded on this route since 2014, I fear that these deaths have been normalized. States must respond. Delays and gaps in state-led search and rescue are costing human lives, he said. Federal prosecutors in Mexico have filed criminal charges against the nation's top immigration official over a fire in the border city of Ciudad Juarez last month that killed 40 people in an immigration detention center. Francisco Garduño, the head of Mexico's National Immigration Institute, is accused of failing to prevent the disaster despite clear warning signs at his agency's detention jails. Last week, Vice World News reported the immigration jail at the center of the tragedy was a de facto extortion center where only migrants with the means to pay a $200 bribe to security guards were released. President Biden's wrapping up a three-day tour of Ireland with an address to the Irish Parliament and a banquet at Dublin Castle. Biden's visit to the Irish Republic comes after he met U.K. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak Wednesday in Belfast, Northern Ireland, where Biden marked the 25th anniversary of the U.S.-brokered peace deal known as the Good Friday Agreement. 
The Federal Reserve believes the U.S. economy will slide into a recession later this year. That's according to minutes from the March meeting of the Federal Open Market Committee, made public on Wednesday, which revealed the Fed is planning another interest rate hike during its next meeting, despite the likelihood of a recession. This comes as new data shows U.S. inflation eased to 5 percent in March, its lowest level in nearly two years. A warning to our audience. This story contains graphic footage and descriptions of abuse. In Indiana, a lawsuit alleges the Jackson County Jail let a schizophrenic prisoner starve to death while in solitary confinement. Shocking details and video footage of Joshua McLemore's abuse in prison reveal the 29-year-old was locked up in solitary for three weeks in the summer of 2021 without access to enough food, a toilet, or any mental health care, despite clear signs of intense distress in his history of mental illness. While locked up, he allegedly lost 45 pounds in less than a month. He was arrested after grabbing a hospital nurse's hair and charged with battery. Democratic California Senator Dianne Feinstein has asked to temporarily step back from her seat on the powerful Judiciary Committee as calls mount for her resignation, including from within her own party. 89-year-old Feinstein, who's recovering from shingles, has missed 60 of 82 Senate votes taken so far this year as her absence stalls the approval of Biden's judicial nominees. This follows widespread reports that Feinstein is suffering from short-term memory loss and mental decline. In February, she announced she will not see seek re-election in 2024, setting up a heated race to replace her. Congressmember Rokana tweeted Wednesday, it's time for Senator Feinstein to resign. We need to put the country ahead of personal loyalty. Not speaking out undermines our credibility as elected representatives of the people, he said. A judge in Delaware sanctioned Fox News Wednesday for withholding evidence in the $1.6 billion Dominion voting systems defamation lawsuit. Lawyers for Fox repeatedly downplayed Rupert uh, Rupert Murdoch's role at Fox News, where he was a corporate officer, in addition to being chair of Fox Corporation, allowing them to turn over fewer materials as part of the discovery process, such as Murdoch's internal communications. Judge Eric Davis accused Fox News of having a credibility problem and said he is appointing someone to investigate the matter. On Wednesday, MSNBC obtained audio recordings played in court that were made by former Fox News producer Abby Grossberg of conversations with Rudy Giuliani and another Trump campaign official that appear to show Trump's team did not believe its own claims that Dominion voting systems were faulty. This is a recording from December 5th, 2020. I think they have looked at the machines. Uh, when, the, when the Secretary of State did its audit, uh, there, there was a lot, I think, a fair bit of looking at the machines. Um, you know, the audit came in pretty darn close to what the machine count was with the receipts. So, you know, I don't know the outcome of those, but our understanding, again, this is from the Secretary of State's office, is that there weren't any physical issues with machines on those inspections. Jury selection for the Dominion trial starts today. The trial scheduled to begin Monday. This comes after a Fox Corporation shareholder sued Murdoch and other members of the board for failing to prevent Fox News from, quote, reporting false and dangerous misinformation, unquote, around the 2020 presidential election. 
More than 2,000 residents of eastern Indiana were ordered to evacuate after a massive fire broke out at a recycling plant Tuesday, releasing a huge plume of acrid smoke into the air. The fire in the city of Richmond has been contained, but is expected to keep smoldering for days, prompting fears among residents about long-term health impacts from hazardous particles caused by burning plastic. And Juul Labs has reached a $462 million settlement with New York, California, and other states over lawsuits that accuse the e-cigarette company of aggressive marketing tactics, leading to a youth vaping crisis. It's the latest settlement in a litany of lawsuits against Juul, which has yet to receive official regulatory approval for its highly addictive products. Juul has withdrawn many of its flavored products from the shelves following criticism that it targets young people. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in Tennessee, where the Shelby County Board of Commissioners voted unanimously Wednesday to reappoint Justin Pearson to the Tennessee House of Representatives less than a week after the Republican-led House voted to expel him and Justin Jones from the body for joining peaceful protests against gun violence after the Nashville school massacre. Pearson and Jones were the two youngest black lawmakers in the Tennessee House. The Nashville Metropolitan Council unanimously voted Monday to restore Justin Jones to office as well. Pearson's being sworn back in this morning. Both men will hold the seats until a special election is held. On Wednesday, Pearson and Jones took part in a rally in Memphis with Gloria Johnson, a white lawmaker who narrowly survived the expulsion vote last week. Together, they've become known as the Tennessee Three. This is Justin Pearson addressing a massive crowd of supporters outside the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, where Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated 55 years ago. Show me what democracy looks like. Show me what democracy looks like. Show me what democracy looks like. This is the democracy that is going to transform a broken nation and a broken state into the place that God calls for it to be. This is the democracy that will bring people from the back. People who've been pushed to the periphery. That is going to transform our nation. This is a democracy that's going to lift up the victims of gun violence instead of supporting the NRA and the gun lobbyists. This is the democracy that they're scared of. This is the democracy that they're worried about because this is the democracy that changes the status quo. Justin Pearson speaking Wednesday at a Memphis rally where he was joined by Tennessee Representative Gloria Johnson. We need to lift up these amazing voices of these young people. We need a multiracial, multigenerational organization in the Tennessee legislature, and these young voices are critical. And thank you. We need to welcome these not young voices and not keep them down. Because these young people are passionate, they're smart, they understand the issues and how they affect every single person in their district. 
The third member of the Tennessee Three, Representative Justin Jones, also spoke at Wednesday's Memphis rally. There is a movement rising up in Tennessee from Memphis to Nashville to Knoxville to send a message to these anti-democratic forces that you're in the find-out portion. You're in the find-out portion. That you shut off our microphones and so we had to bring a megaphone. That you pushed our people to the back so we had to walk up to the front of the well. And so we have a clear message that our brother Pierce is going to join us. We know I'm confident because I know that after crucifixion comes resurrection. And so when we walk in that chamber on tomorrow as representatives again, we must continue to demands that led us there in the first place. That a week after a mass shooting hit Nashville, rather than pass common sense gun laws, they passed a resolution to expel the two youngest black members in the General Assembly. And so we walk in there tomorrow with a clear message that we have a demand of Cameron Sexton to resign. Speaker Sexton represents an enemy to democracy, to multiracial democracy. He's trying to bring us back to a Tennessee in our past, the same Tennessee where the Klan was founded. But we say no longer will we sit by and be silent. It's time to rise up, not just as individuals. We didn't go up there as individuals, but we went up there representing the people of our district, the people of our state, the young people who can't even vote, the young people who said we need a voice, and that's why we walked up to that well. And so we hope that what happens today, that you come with Brother Pearson tomorrow to walk into those chambers. Because we're walking into hostile territory. Place where people, where young black voices are not welcome and those who stand with us are not welcome. And so we're not going to be able to to survive that alone. We need to let them know that you are on notice and that the world is watching and that it's not stopped this week or tomorrow or next week, but something's changing in Tennessee. Something's changing in our state that is going to restore democracy and get rid of these forces that are trying to take us backward. After the Justins, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, as well as Gloria Johnson, spoke outside the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, where Dr. King died of gun violence 55 years ago, they led a march to the Shelby County Board of Commissioners ahead of a vote on the reappointment of Justin Pearson to the Tennessee House. This is Pearson addressing the county commissioners. So the message for all the people in Nashville who decided to expel us. You can't expel hope. You can't expel justice. You can't expel our voice. And you sure can't expel our fight. We look forward to continuing to fight, continuing to advocate until justice rolls down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Let's get back to work. After the Shelby County Board of Commissioners in Memphis unanimously voted to reappoint Justin Pearson to the Tennessee House, he spoke to supporters outside. The Shelby County Commission did not need job. Yeah. I'm so glad we get to get back to doing our job. Yeah.
Justin Pearson speaking Wednesday in Memphis after the Shelby County Board of Commissioners voted to reinstate him to his seat in the Tennessee House of Representatives less than a week after he and Justin Jones were expelled for joining peaceful protests against gun violence after the Nashville school massacre. His swearing-in ceremony is taking place today in Nashville. When we come back, we'll be joined by Emory Professor Carol Anderson, author of The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. Stay with us. The earth in my hands, the breath in my lungs, the pool of the tide, the salt on my tongue. Fury and power Buried deep in the rough They don't know the forces We have hidden son I am Divided the broken, diluted the sun, to the pain of our tears and the songs that we sung. Our words and our melodies, the wisdom inside of me, they try to take everything, they thought they took everything. Rise the Ride, Kashana, here on Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. To talk more about the debate over gun control, Republican attacks on democracy across the country, and much more, we're joined by Carol Anderson, professor at Emory University, author of The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. The paperback edition has just been published. She's also the author of One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy and the book White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. Her new documentary, named after a Langston Hughes poem, is titled I, Too. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Professor Anderson. It's great to have you with us. So, you have both Justins, the youngest black lawmakers in the Tennessee House of Representatives, uh, being reinstated to the Tennessee legislature after leading, with Gloria Johnson, a protest against guns on the floor of the House after the Nashville school massacre. Talk about the significance of what's taken place over the last week with the overwhelmingly white legislature expelling these two legislators. Oh, you are seeing a convergence of so many of the multiple streams in American society right there. So on one hand, what you're seeing is the, the, the power of gerrymandering to create a legislature that is not representative of the people, that is not one person, one vote, but instead is that extreme partisan gerrymandering so that you have the needs of the people not being able to be addressed by that legislature. What you're also seeing is the, the power of the youth 
who are pushing forward for a different vision of America. It is a vision that is multiracial, multiethnic, multilingual, multicultural, multireligious. And that vision scares those who are in those gerrymandered districts, scares the bejeebers, and that's the scholarly term, out of them, because it is the, a way of being, a way of thinking, a way of being, of recognizing people's humanity, a way of knowing that those are, there are resources, incredible resources in this nation that should be available to all. But instead, you've got this hoarding that's happening, a hoarding of power, a hoarding of a way of, of wanting to be able to control. And in that control, this is why we're also seeing this valorization of the Second Amendment. And as I, I laid out in the book, the Second Amendment emerged really fully um, out of a concern about Black people, out of a fear of Black people. And so this is what the role of the militia was. And so, yes, we hear the thing about domestic tyranny. They really weren't good at that. We heard this thing about being able to, the militia being able to fend off a, um, a, a foreign invasion. They really weren't good at that. But what they were good at was putting down slave revolts. And so when you're having the debates about the Second Amendment, you're having the battles over the ratification of the Constitution, the Second Amendment was the bribe to the South to not scuttle the Constitution of the United States in order to have control of that militia to keep the enslaved in check. And so this, this stream that comes through is what we're consistently seeing is, and I think about Charlie Kirk, um, who said last week um, that, you know, unfortunately, they're going to be gun deaths, but that's the price you have to pay in order to have the Second Amendment. And so what it's saying is because of the inherent fundamental fear of black people in this nation, we are willing to be unsafe in our schools, in our churches, in our grocery stores, in our amusement parks, on our streets, in our parking lots. We are willing to be unsafe in order to be able to have the, the, the access to, to weaponry, where we can't even think through it in terms of what is logical. What is logical is that weapons of war do not belong in the hands of civilians. What is logical is that you have background checks. What is logical is that you have red flag laws. But all of those, because of the gerrymandering that has happened politically and the, the barriers that have been put up for access to the ballot box, you've got a political system that is not responsive to the needs of the people. And that is what you saw in Tennessee. Professor Anderson, I wanted to go to who Justin Jones is, one of the two black legislators who were expelled, uh, was reinstated on Monday. But there still has to be a special election with untold amount of money having to be spent because of the overwhelmingly white legislature expelling them. Um, but Justin Jones, before he was elected in November, um, was a well-known activist. And one of the things that he did um, in the last year is one of his targets um, was the bust of the Confederate Lieutenant General Nathan Bedford Forrest. He mm -hmm. wanted it removed from the state capitol. 
Now, this is very interesting, uh, going to who Nathan Bedford was. The first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan sold slaves in Memphis, was in command at the Fort Pillow Massacre. Cameron Sexton, the Speaker of the House in Tennessee, um, voted against the removal. And, of course, each time Justin Jones speaks, he is now calling for him to resign. Talk about the significance of this um, this push. Uh, ultimately, of course, they did succeed. And guns. And so part of what you're also seeing here is the, the kind of, again, valorization of those who, who were steeped in anti-blackness, those who, and, if, and to put that in a public space, saying this is, this, these are our value systems right here. That speaks volume. It speaks volumes about how intricately woven the anti-blackness is in the, the operating code and how you have this, this, this has been a consistent push to, to open up this nation to, you know, so we hold these truths to be self-evident. The push that you're seeing, what we heard from Justin Jones, what we heard from Justin Pearson was to make those truths self-evident. And that is to to break apart this notion that you've got um, that you in, you embrace the Confederacy, you embrace the treason of attacking the United States of America, you embrace slaveholding. And so I think about Tate Reeves, um, uh, the governor of Mississippi, bringing this out as Confederate History Month in in Mississippi. <sighs> The same Mississippi that is is removing the control of the police and of the judicial system from Jackson. Again, it's part and parcel of the same the same pattern, part and parcel of the same drive to put black folks back in their place. I mean, that's what Nathan Bedford Forrest was about. Black folks thought they could be free. Black folks can't be free. Black folks thought that they were equal. Black folks can't be equal. And so when you think about that as the signal, as the public facing signal, what it says to the rest of the community is, is, a, is, a, is a kind of violence, a violence on your own humanity. And, and this other vision that the Justins are talking about is a vision that recognizes and embraces our humanity and that, that, that finds a way for us to be able to live into that full humanity, not to have this exclusion, this control, um, because part of what you're seeing in these, these legislatures is, is a drive for control to put all the things back in their place. So black folks need to go back in their place. Women need to go back in their place. Immigrants need to go back in their place. The LGBTQ community needs to go back in their place. That drive to put things back in their place, the push, the counterweight has been no, no. And you heard it when they said, no, guilty, guilty, guilty. Professor Anderson, I want to ask about your new documentary, I, Too. I want to play first a clip of the trailer. Were you taught the Hamburg massacre 
in school. No. You looked across the river, all you could see is a jungle. As African-Americans, you got to go find it yourself. you got to go research it because you're going to miss it because they're not telling you. And that's the original cross with the bullet holes. So you have this church that is providing sanctuary and protection to those who are being chased out of their homes. Now, right. that is biblical. When it happened, he hit underneath the streetcar. You see, he could look underneath the car and see people hitting the street. Here they're sitting in this circle, and they would grab someone, and they'd take them over a hill, and you'd hear a gunshot. We have no idea how many black people were murdered. Some of these records were intentionally not kept, and some things have oddly enough gone missing. So that is the a clip of the trailer for the new film about you, I, Too. Uh, you're talking there about the Hamburg massacre. I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that and also the attack on African-American history, on American history across this country, where you have Missouri, the House, voting to defund the libraries, uh, because if they can't have their books banned, they don't want the libraries open, as in Llano, Texas. They're saying if a judge forces them to put them back, just close the libraries. You recently wrote a piece in The Washington Post titled, Florida's Past Paints Ron DeSantis's War on Wokeism in a Dark Light. Put it all together for us, Professor Anderson. So as part of this pattern that we're talking about, there's also the attack on history, the attack on knowledge, because of people who knows their history, oh, then they're thinking in, in very new, vibrant ways. When you know what where you come from, when you know the violence that has been rained down on communities, it, it begins to shatter those those very traditional pat political narratives. So one of the things we did in that film was to link the January 6th insurrection with the coup in Wilmington, North Carolina, where you had a multiracial government in the late 1890s that was overthrown by white supremacists, where you had black folks slaughtered, where you had the 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 newspaper for the the black newspaper burned down and trashed where in hamburg you had black uh, the black militia marching on january 4th down market street and you had two white men come up behind them just angry that black men were in uniform and and demanded that that they disband and then demanded that they hand over their guns to them this is a state militia and and when the black soldiers said no, they were massacred, massacred. But when we don't know these histories, then we're able to talk about we're able to see American as as white and male, uh, as patriotism, as white and male, as 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 um, as as the folks who are fighting for this country as white and male. But what we're really seeing is that you have had black folks believing in America, even when America didn't believe in them. You had black folks fighting for America when America wouldn't fight for them. And you had black folks just, just pushing this nation to be stronger, to be better, to live up to its ideals. And that is what you saw in Tennessee in the legislature when the Justin stood up and spoke the truth. 
And Ron DeSantis, if you can talk about the significance, he's not only, of course, governor of Florida, uh, but is probably running for president. And he's running on that platform of basically anti-blackness, anti-LGBTQ, and anti-woman. So you've got him pushing for the six-week abortion ban. I believe he signed off on that. You had the the scuttling of the African-American studies uh, AP course because it lacked educational value. Um, And you had the attack on Disney because Disney said, you know, LGBTQ folk are folk. Um, And that is a radical idea. And so you see him attacking, attacking, attacking because the marginalized apparently in his worldview don't have the power to fight back. And that platform is so racist, homophobic and disgusting. And it is part of that that narrative of trying to bring back control. I think about the old Archie Bunker song, um, the days when men were men and girls were girls and you knew who you were then. Um, Wouldn't we like to go back to those great old days again? It's hearkening back to a past that wasn't so great because it was violently exclusionary because it undermined democracy. And so what we're seeing is a full-blown assault on democracy. We're also seeing that full-blown assault on democracy by going after the rule of law, threatening judges, threatening prosecutors who are trying to bring justice to those who have allegedly broken the law. So all of these are factoring in the assault on education, the assault on knowledge, the assault on access to reproductive care, the assault on 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 the right to vote by raising these barriers and then opening up full blown access to guns, to the violence that those guns bring and to craft it in that language of crime, crime, crime which has that subtone of blackness, blackness, blackness. It's, 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 a, it's a, a formula, it's a recipe, and it's, a, it's an authoritarian recipe. It is an anti-democratic recipe. And it is a recipe that you have young folk pushing back, fighting back. And, and, and one of the things that is consistent in American history is that that right-wing authoritarianism is always met with a larger, better vision of what America could be. And that is what we're seeing right now, a battle for that vision. There's the Ron DeSantis vision, and then there's the Justin Pearson and Justin Jones vision. And finally, going back to Justin Pearson and Justin Jones, I couldn't help continually this past week but think of the title of your book, One Person, No Vote. Uh, The issue of gerrymandering all over this country, these um, um, uh, hyper-supermajorities in states where actually the state itself is evenly divided, but because of gerrymandering and what you have in Tennessee, um, these men—it was not only they who were expelled— 
It was all the people who voted for them. This wasn't like getting fired from uh, your employment in a store. They were elected. Right. And and oddly enough, or, or ironically enough, Tennessee was the site of that massive Supreme Court decision that laid out one person, one vote because of the ways that white rural conservative counties had disproportionate power in the state legislature vis-a-vis Nashville and Memphis. And because of a series of Supreme Court decisions, subsequent Supreme Court decisions, particularly Shelby County v. Holder in 2013, these states have been able to hyper-partisan gerrymander again, and this is the result. So when you have something like 70% or so of, of Americans wanting to have sensible gun safety legislation, but you have a legislature that is built on extreme partisan gerrymandering, where they appear to be immune from the will of the people. You're you're not getting that kind of legislative response. And that is why the bullhorn came up, because you had young folk saying to their representatives, we need gun safety legislation. We do not need to be in a space in our workplace where we are being gunned down. And the response from that legislature was they were concerned about their decorum being disrupted because people were responding to the needs of those people, to the needs of those young folk who were out in the halls. So extreme partisan gerrymandering is it is so anti-democratic, so anti one person, one vote. And the result is, is that you've got a a society that believes in reproductive rights, a society that believes in the right to vote, a society that believes in gun safety legislation. And you have legislators who aren't responsive to the wants and the needs and the desires of the people. Well, Carol Anderson, I want to thank you for being with us. We'll continue this discussion. Carol Anderson is professor at Emory University in Atlanta, author of The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. The paperback edition has just been published. Also author of One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy, and the book White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. Coming up, President Biden signed legislation ending the coronavirus national emergency. But millions with long COVID say the pandemic is not over. We'll speak with journalists living with long COVID. Stay with us. So, so you think you could tell heaven from Can you tell a green field from a cold steel rail? A smile from a veil? Do you think you can tell?
Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. This week, President Biden signed legislation that declared an end to the COVID-19 national emergency. But the pandemic is ongoing for millions living with long COVID. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found nearly one in five people infected with COVID-19 go on to experience symptoms of long COVID. One of them is Democratic senator, former vice presidential candidate Tim Kaine. I got COVID in March 2020. My case was mild, and by early April 2020, I was fine, except for one lingering symptom. When I first got COVID, I noticed that all of my nerve endings were tingling 24-7. Feels like they've been dipped in an Alka-Seltzer, like they've all had five cups of coffee. I didn't talk about it for a while because I thought I would wake up one day and that symptom would be gone. But that didn't happen. Three years later, the symptoms haven't gotten worse, but that it also hasn't gotten better. I've since learned that my long COVID symptom is a significantly possible after effect of this viral infection. And while it likely won't get worse, it may never go away. I wish I didn't have long COVID, but having it connects me with people across the country who do. Virginia Senator Kane reintroduced the Care for Long COVID Act with Senators Ed Markey and Tammy Duckworth last month. But funding for research and resources remains limited. This is Terry Wilder, chair of the ME Action Minnesota, testifying in March before the Minnesota House Health, Finance and Policy Committee. It's estimated that 10 to 20 percent of all Minnesotans who got COVID have experienced long COVID symptoms. This suggests that there are potentially hundreds of thousands of Minnesotans with long COVID who are experiencing significant impacts to their health, functionality, and quality of life. And that includes children, adolescents, and young adults. It's also estimated that around 50 percent of people with long COVID meet the clinical criteria for the disease I have, myalgic encephalomyelitis. And this is a disabling and complex disease that impacts multiple body systems. It's a neurological disease, according to the World Health Organization. I also want to highlight that COVID-19 has disproportionately impacted black, indigenous, and other non-white communities, as well as low-income, rural, disabled, and elder populations. For more, we're joined in Atlanta by Ryan Pryor, journalist in residence at the Century Foundation, author of The Long Haul. His new article for The Nation magazine is headlined The Long COVID Revolution. His new column for Psychology Today is called Patient Revolution. He's also on the Emmy Action Board of Directors. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Ryan. First of all, explain more fully what ME is, how it relates to long COVID. And, I mean, you're not only writing about this, you are living this every day. Talk about your life experience. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, ME refers to uh, myalgic encephalomyelitis, as, as Terry Wilder was, was talking about in the, in the segment. And myalgic refers to pain. Encephalomyelitis refers to uh, um, inflammation of the brain and the spinal cord. Um, it also goes by the, the, the term chronic fatigue syndrome, so sometimes it's referred to as ME-CFS. So it's a, a, a neuroimmune disease that has um, no approved treatments um, from the FDA, um, and many patients um, become disabled and can't, can't work. Um, I'm fortunate that I'm in the 
um, even though the, some of the worst experiences of my life um, made me bedridden, I'm now in the uh, situation where I have a more mild case and I am able to work. Um, and, but I use my voice as a journalist, as an advocate, and, and working for a think tank now, working in public policy to, to pursue um, ideas and uh, situations and uh, telling the story of, of millions who can't tell their uh, own stories and, and who can't live out their dreams. And um, the, the primary symptom of, of, of MECFS and really the primary symptom of long COVID is, is called post-exertional malaise which means that people um, do minor exertions, which could be taking a shower or walk, uh, walking down the block uh, on their street, um, and that can leave them uh, bedridden or, or sick for uh, days, if not weeks afterwards. So it makes it impossible to participate uh, in society if you, if you can't do um, basic functions. So, Ryan, talk about what it means for President Biden to say that the COVID national emergency is over what this means for millions of uh, long COVID sufferers. What do you think needs to be done? Yeah, so for people who, who've had chronic illnesses um, for, for decades prior to the pandemic, uh, many, many felt that um, long COVID was a, a moment where their needs were going to be met. And um, there's been tremendous power from the uh, chronic illness community that has helped embolden uh, the long COVID movement, this, this long COVID revolution that we talk about in the piece, that um, so many groups have come together in this moment of tremendous post-viral illness uh, in ways that they never had before. And so the, the, the message that um, our chronic illness community would have to President Biden and is to acknowledge the fact that there, there's uh, millions missing, um, millions of people missing from their lives, uh, and there's millions of dollars that are currently still missing from this, uh, the research that needs to be done, and really the, um, the drug repurposing trials that need to be done to urgently find new treatments to help people with, with long COVID. Um, as a society, we came together with a, a public-private partnership for Operation Warp Speed, uh, creating vaccines at the, the fastest rate and distributing them uh, to, into our population faster than any vaccine in history. Uh, we now have an opportunity to do a, a similar thing for, for long COVID, uh, to do an Operation Warp Speed. There's dozens of, of drugs that could work for MECFS and, and for long COVID, um, and we need gr much greater urgency from the National Institutes of Health and from, uh, from others to um, get these, these treatments tested. And um, many of those probably will work for uh, treating the, the long uh, disabling symptoms of, of long COVID. Um, and you, this is a moment where we, we can actually um, learn to characterize and research and treat um, a number of different diseases, not just long COVID, uh, but long COVID is a way into understanding, um, like I mentioned before, MECFS, another disease, uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, POTS, which means that people's blood uh, heart rates rise rapidly um, upon standing and people faint. Um, that's another uh, major characteristic of, of long COVID. Um, so there, there's so many other chronic illnesses that um, are, are post-infection uh, chronic illnesses. And so long COVID represents a time for um, all of us as a society to understand uh, the, the number of people who are living with invisible disabilities, the, these millions missing um, who are you know, homebound or bedbound. Uh, in this is their moment to um, uh, sort of be 
brought back into the mainstream of medicine. Ryan Pryor, in your book, your columns, your articles, uh, you draw on the history of HIV-AIDS activists with ACT UP, who changed health care policy, and disability activists who crawled up um, the uh, steps of the U.S. Capitol to demand passage of the American Disabilities Act. Talk about this kind of action, what you call a patient revolution. Yes, and so um, my, my colleague uh, Fiona Lowenstein and I wrote a, a piece for um, The Nation. Um, Fiona is the author of a book called The Long COVID Survival Guide, and, um, and I've also written a book um, that, that chronicles the, 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 the rise of patient groups primarily online. Um, and our, our piece for The Nation starts with uh, a, a millions missing protest outside the White House uh, held one day after the president said on, on 60 Minutes that uh, the pandemic was over. This was uh, last September. Um, but I think this protest uh, was indicative of, of a larger history of, of people with uh, diseases um, that were not well recognized by uh, the medical establishment who, who came together uh, to rally for um, a cure, a rally for treatments. ACT UP and the Treatment Action Group in the 1980s and the 1990s are, are kind of the hallmark of, of what health advocacy in the wake of an epidemic or a pandemic looks like. Um, and the same with the, those who campaigned for the Americans with Disabilities Act that was passed in 1990. Um, so this, this new generation has stepped up um, thinking about how to advocate for chronic illnesses. Um, this, this protest um, outside the White House was, was part of this, this you know, noble tradition of of uh, patients uh, speaking on, on behalf of those that uh, can't, can't uh, speak for themselves. And I, w one note I'll have here is that because, because people with ME-CFS are so disabled and they experience post-exertional malaise, um, it's hard to get a, even a small protest is a major accomplishment in our community because so much of it has to happen over social media. People are too sick to, to go out. and. Um, uh, but I think that this is um, the, the step forward um, and, and bringing more um, media attention to this protest and really to this larger movement is something that policymakers need to understand. And uh, Senator Kane's uh, Care for Long COVID Act is one of a number of different solutions. This, this Operation Warp Speed for um, Long COVID Treatments is, a, is another idea that I think that th these need to be acted on. And um, patients will be gathering next week for the uh, Long COVID Advocacy Week on, on Capitol Hill, uh, telling their, their members of Congress to, to move these bills forward and to um, you know, green light really millions, if not billions, of more dollars that could be used to treat this, this disease. If we don't act quickly uh, to research it and to cure it and to treat it, um, or to provide uh, disability accommodations or disability benefits for those who, who are sick, um, the, the, the long-term impact of, this, of, of long COVID is uh, of a scale and scope that's hard to, to understand. Um, Harvard economist David Cutler uh, estimates that it would be a $3.7 trillion, you know, trillion with a T, impact uh, on the U.S. economy for, for um, years to come if, if we don't address long COVID now. So, um, a major urgent approach to uh, research for long COVID uh, is really important for um, helping people who uh, unlock their dreams who, who might not be able to 
to live the lives well, that they intended. Ryan Pryor, I want to thank you so much for coming in uh, to the studio in Atlanta, Georgia, especially given um, the price you will pay for this, that you yourself are suffering from long COVID, but how important it is to share this information. And we'll continue to cover this much understood, not often talked about issue of long COVID. Ryan Pryor, journalist and resident Century Foundation, wrote the book, The Long Haul. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.